No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. Lord, we do bless you this morning, and we do thank you today for the opportunity to sing your praises, for the opportunity for the opportunity to to address you, Lord, as as our Father, as our King, and to dress, address you in uh, a way that uh, doesn't feel distant, Lord, when, when we're connected, Lord, uh, to you through our Messiah, Yeshua, and uh, uh, to one another in him, Father. I pray this morning as we look at the very end of our parasha and the end of the book of Bereshit this morning, um, that you might um, enlighten us from yourself, that you might cause us to see glorious things in your Torah, that we might soak in it, Lord, and that, that you might make a difference in our lives through the words that you have deposited with us today. We bless your holy name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Have you been keeping up with the news lately? Um, one thing that is not easy to come by in the news these days is kindness. Kindness. Believe it or not, it was 28 years ago, exactly, when President uh, George H.W. Bush, Bush won, in his inaugural address, called for a kinder and gentler nation. Some of us remember those words. And I'm not sure that in light of all that we're hearing uh, through our media sources these days, that that vision has been realized. I'm not even, as many of you know, a social media guy, but I know a uh, rant from a troll, from a tweet storm, and these are words that we're just hearing. You know, we're inundated with, with these uh, sorts of words and this sort of terminology these days. And I'm not sure that the, the anger, the dissension, the insult that we are encountering is anything new. But in a time of transition, such as we find ourselves in our nation uh, right now, these things certainly seem to be taking quite a center stage And I've found that kindness is hard to come by when I look at the events of this time in this season. And that's why a very kind letter that I came across this week really caught my attention and really touched my heart. And maybe some of you saw it. This is a letter written by uh, Jenna and Barbara Bush, the daughters of George W. Bush, Bush II, uh, and Laura Bush. It's a letter that they wrote and addressed to the daughters of Barack and Michelle Obama, Malia and Sasha Obama. And it stood out to me in great contrast with a lot of the other schmutz that I have encountered in the current climate. Here are two former first daughters, and of course a Republican administration, writing a letter to two soon-to-be former first daughters in a Democratic administration. 
And the letter was kind. It was caring. It was beautiful. Just a couple of, just a couple of quotes from this letter. They said, quote, we have watched you grow from girls to impressive young women with grace and ease. And through it all, you had each other, just like we did. They gave advice. They said, explore your passions, learn who you are, continue to surround yourself with loyal friends who know you, adore you, and will fiercely protect you. Those who judge you don't love you, and their voices should should not hold weight. Rather, it's your own hearts that matter. It really was, to me, an oasis of kindness in the news that is otherwise a sea of rancor. And I encourage you to read that letter, not not now, <laughs> but I encourage you to read that letter because it really does put a spotlight on the on the human side of a very politically charged atmosphere. Kindness is of course one of the fruits of the spirit. And I don't know that there's a person among us this morning here who doesn't value kindness and doesn't want to grow in kindness. But as you may or may not have experienced, it's not always easy to be kind. It's not easy when you're frustrated with the person on the other end of the phone because of a mix-up with your utility bill. It's not easy when your patience has worn thin with one of your coworkers. It's, it's not easy when you're tired and you're stretched and you're busy in your home environment with a parent or with a spouse or with a sibling. It's not easy when you're in a hurry. It's not easy when a person whom you're very close to has, has let you down or when you're in the midst of a, of a strong and an intense disagreement with someone uh, who you care very much about. And they have a perspective that you just can't see and you can't agree with it. And, and you know, it's apt to set you off on your own tweet storm or whatever. And it isn't easy and it isn't always our first inclination to plan for kindness and to make kindness a an intentional priority in our lives. To, to honor others, to be giving to build up other people, to encourage, to bring comfort, to sympathize, to seek, to understand. And I'd like for us to think this morning about a very, what I find to be a very moving section at the end of our parsha that shines a light on Joseph's kindness in the aftermath of a situation that is a lot more difficult than someone cutting you off on the highway. We see here Joseph's kindness highlighted, described, and explained, and in light of what has just happened between Joseph and his brothers, it's really incredible. Would you look with me at chapter 50, verses 15 through 21? We're in Bereshit, chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil 
that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. When Jacob was around, the brothers of Joseph hadn't been too concerned about Joseph taking revenge on them for what they had done to Joseph years before. And of course, a a patriarch or a matriarch in the family often has that unifying, peacemaking influence on the life of the family. But after Jacob died here, the brothers get nervous. A guilty conscience doesn't go away easily. It doesn't say for certain, but the text gives the impression, I think, that the the brothers claim that Jacob had told them to to go to Joseph and and, and to say, forgive the sin of your brothers, uh, is probably something of a, of a falsehood. But that's what they do. They concoct this falsehood out of fear, it seems in the passage, and they make this plea to Joseph. But that's not the focal point of the text per se. The focal point is is Joseph's response. And I just want to say three things about his response. I want to first look at the statement that Joseph speaks kindly to them. Just look at that statement. And then I want to look at some of the signs of Joseph's kindness here in the passage. And then I want I want to um I want to observe the the source of of Joseph's kindness, which will really get to the heart of 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 the application for all of us this morning, at least for those of us who care at all about living a life where we're extending kindness to others. First, the statement of Joseph's kindness. We're reading along in this account, the verses that we just read, and um, the narrator at the very end, after relaying the story, kind of cuts in and says, Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's Joseph's kindness that the narrator emphasizes. Now, interestingly, a very literal reading of what it says here um, would be translated quite differently. The the wording, as uh, Seth read this morning from the Torah, is Vaidaber alibam, which means thus... He spoke upon their heart. That's what it says. Thus, he spoke upon their heart. Rashi, one of the renowned commentators, says in his explanation of these words, quote, 
words that are receptive to the heart. That is, the way that he related to his brothers was not superficial and it wasn't formulaic. It was relational and it touched them deeply on the inside. It moved them, that, that it filled them with awe and gratitude, excitement, wonder. It, 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 it did all that comes along with, with something that we, we feel deeply that we still use today in our modern, you know, uh, colloquial sayings, it touched my heart. Kindness, in the sense that it's used here, means Joseph's reaction to his brother's plea brought them a deep sense of inner peace, wholeness, satisfaction, joy. Wow, this is greater than we could have imagined. We can look forward to good and blessing when they had been consumed with fear and anxiety. And I see in these these parallels, as we do all throughout the account of Joseph's life, I see in this parallels to our Messiah Yeshua, who in his ministry in the first century, but also in his ongoing work in our lives today, offers a peace that runs very deep inside of the person and one that lasts. You will find rest for your souls. You will never thirst again. It's, it's a similar concept when we speak, when, when, when we, when we speak about Joseph speaking to the heart and bringing wholeness and satisfaction to the hearts of his, of his brothers. Kindness isn't just being nice or being courteous. It touches something inside of us when it's extended to us and we touch another deeply when we extend kindness in this sense, in, in, in this, in this sense of the word in speaking to the heart. And the question for each one of us this morning is, do we, do we think about this in our lives and in our day to day dealings and in our relationships, in our homes and at work and out and about? Do we think about this type of a kindness? Do we think about being proactive and being intentional and in, in extending it and in living it? What about in our lives as children of God and as followers of, of Yeshua? Are, are we putting ourselves in close enough proximity to our Messiah Yeshua in our lives so that, so that we're refreshed by His kindness? So that we, we really do experience that deep touch on a continual basis in our lives rather than something that's superficial or discharging duties or formulaic in that relationship. This is true kindness, something that, that, that touches, something that, that speaks to the inner person and therefore can satisfy and can make a difference from the inside out. There are all sorts of signs just in these few verses that we read, signs of Joseph's kindness. There's not just this emphatic statement on the part of the narrator that thus Joseph comforts them and speaks kindly to them, but, but, but we see the evidence of it in the story itself. I'll just mention a few that I, that I think are tied in to this summary statement by the narrator at the end. Um, one is, is weeping. When the brothers come to Joseph, he weeps. It doesn't say exactly why, but it, it's, it seems to be, it's, we get the impression that he's overcome 
by his, his brother's lack of confidence in him. After all he had already done, it's like you, you still aren't getting it. And yet he doesn't take offense. He doesn't lash out. How could you begin to think after all that I've done for you that now after our father has died, I'm going to come and uh, take revenge on you? There's no, there's no lashing out. There's weeping. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is repeated. It, it, it occurs twice in this short passage. Twice the brothers mention forgiveness. And, and again, the, the implication in, in the scene here through jo- the narrator emphasizing Joseph's kindness and, and in the specific signs of that kindness is that Joseph is forgiving toward his, his brothers. Here's another sign of it. The refusal to take revenge or even punish his brothers. We read that his brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? In fact, not only does Joseph refuse to take revenge, he repays evil with, with practical affection, a sign of kindness. He assures them not to fear. He, he gives this, this sense of security and of safety twice. And whenever we see repetition in the scriptures, obviously it's not random happenstance. It's for emphasis, providing for their needs, giving, arranging so that they'll be able to live in the land. And, and again, as we can do all throughout the story of Joseph, I would draw connections here with Yeshua, who we find, you know, grieving over Jerusalem out of love for people who wronged him and who were still not there yet in terms of getting who Yeshua is in the greater picture of what God was up to through Yeshua's life. I see a parallel here in the wording of the brother's request for Joseph to forgive their sins. You can compare it with Isaiah 53, that great prophecy about the Messiah as the suffering servant. And it's the same phrasing, take up our sins, like to bear, to carry, to take up. When it says, surely our sins he bore, he took up, nasa is the word. And you have it repeated here. And they say the same thing, bear, carry, take up our sins, not just forgive us, slachlanu. It's different, and and it looks very much like Isaiah 53. It echoes Isaiah 53. His refusal to take revenge reminds me of Yeshua's silence through accusation and petition. And Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What about these demonstrative um, aspects of kindness in our lives, being burdened, granting forgiveness, not taking revenge, providing a sense of safety and security, not, not causing fear and anxiety by how we're operating and dealing and relating, providing for needs. But lastly, we find in this passage also the source of that kindness. So, so that he shows kindness is clear. And we've talked a little bit about the, the sense of that. And he spoke upon their hearts. And some of the signs of that kindness are clear here in the passage. But it, but it even tips us off to something deeper here. And that is like, like where, where does this kindness come from? 
That is, I think we have here something of an answer to the question, how, after all of the mistreatment that Joseph has experienced at the hands of his brothers, how can he relate to his brothers with such kindness? How does he do it? And I think that's a question that might connect with each one of us on a deep level because we want to be kind too. And maybe you've discovered that kindness is not something that you can just will into existence 100% of the time and never struggle with it. And it's not the way in which you can relate to, to everyone all the time, especially people with whom there's some baggage and people with whom there's a past and there's a wrench. I think we find the source of Joseph's kindness in that great and famous verse and statement in principle that we have here. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, so what does this mean? I think it's pretty straightforward. It means, of course, that the brothers in their throwing Joseph into the pit, selling, lying to their father about him, uh, they intended to wrong their brother. You meant evil. And that's what they did. They wronged their brother. And that wrong was reprehensible. And it caused Joseph hurt. And it caused him pain. And it caused him enslavement and, and abuse. But in and through the pain and hurt and heartache, God found a way to bring about good, namely the preservation of life, uh, the lives of the, the, the very family to whom he had promised life and blessing and flourishing. The experience was evil and the intent of the brothers was evil. But God was able to bring about good and Joseph is able to see that. I have, many of you have um, heard me, I've often expressed this, this principle of God's providential work and ability to, to bring about good even in and through the face of evil as God being able to wring good out of evil as, 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 as if you have a, a drenched hand towel and you, you wring it, that God has a way of wringing good out of evil. It doesn't make the process, the whole process good or, or easy or without pain or anything like that. But God is able to bring about good. And this, this is the key to understanding the source of Joseph's kindness. Here, here's how. And if you leave with something today, I, I hope it will be, uh, this, this, this concept. The understanding that God is working for good no matter what motivates us to show kindness. The understanding that no matter what, no matter how you feel, no matter what you experience, no matter how you've been wronged, no matter how much pain, no matter how much hurt, and that it can be real, and I don't want to minimize that at all. But no matter the understanding, the conviction, the trust, we're in the realm of the inside here, the, 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 the truth 
the knowledge, the faith that God is working for good no matter what, that can stir and stimulate in us kindness. Somehow, that somehow, some way, God can pull out of anything His good plan. That leads us to kindness. So think about it this way. Eliminate from this passage in this equation trust, Joseph's trust in God's providential work. Eliminate that. And what do you have? You have a family feud. Eliminate this statement that what you intended for evil, God intends for good. Eliminate that and and you have revenge, you have an argument, you have anger, you have offense, you have begrudging, you know, help or whatever. Disagreement. Prove to me that our father told you to come and wanted me to forgive you. Without this perspective that what God, uh, what, what you, the brothers, meant for evil, God meant for good, you just have more arguing. What this means is that maybe if we have a problem with kindness and especially extending it and expressing it to another person and a particular person or individual or individuals, maybe our focus is on the wrong that we perceive that they've done to us and our focus isn't on the fact that there's nothing that God can't ultimately work through for his purposes. In other words, if we want one reason, not the only reason, but one possible reason why we might struggle with kindness, showing kindness towards someone, is because we're fixated on the perceived wrong, the past, the hurt, the pain that that person has caused or causes, is causing in our lives. And we don't have this perspective of Joseph that that in and through it all, somehow, some way, God is is still on the throne and still active and working. And God is a God who is working for good. When we know that God's at work, we can see beyond retribution. When we know that God is at work, we can work through anger and we can work through hurt. When we know God is at work, we can forgive. Because God's purposes are so much bigger than my one struggle or my one season of pain. This is not just, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. It, this isn't just a matter of, um, just look on the bright side. This principle is, is so, um, replete throughout the scriptures and such an important principle for us because, and Joseph is so celebrated not because he's an optimist and he looks on the bright side, but because he's a person of deep faith. Because he's a person who doesn't hesitate to declare that something is happening before, below the surface of his own experience and circumstances and hurt and painful situation. He, he can see with spiritual eyes underneath that surface what many, 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 many cannot see. And what many of us struggle to see. And so we're responding to the circumstances of the person we perceive as causing the circumstances. That's why Joseph's kindness, that's the source, because of his eyes of faith. If you, if you just try to be positive all the time, your positivity will dry up 
in your own striving for it. You will be devastated by a person or a situation or, or a circumstance and, and you'll eventually react. But here, as we see in the life of Joseph, it flows from faith in who God is and what God is doing, even if it's below the surface of what we observe and what we feel. It's Yeshua, of course, facing his crucifixion that provides for us the ultimate example of God devising good when others were devising evil. And that's the great parallel that we find here between Joseph and our Messiah, Yeshua. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Evil men in the life of Messiah Yeshua. Romans, a part of the Jewish leadership who are supportive of the acts and the actions devising, you know, for evil against Yeshua. But God intends it for good. And of course, Yeshua knows and understands this. No one takes, took his life. He gives it up willingly. He understands this. Genesis ends. So here Genesis ends the way it began. And this is classic Dr. John Salhammer. God, how does Genesis begin? God saw that it was good. And now we have at the, at the very beginning, God saw that it was good. And now we have at the very end what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is working his world back to good, back to that original state of of Gan Eden. And we see it at the very beginning and we see it at the very end of the book of Genesis. When we know in our heart who God is and how God is working, we're then equipped to really extend Kindness, that faith, that trust, that conviction, that understanding of who God is resides in the heart. And there's a, stay, a saying, a traditional saying, words that come from the heart enter the heart. Words that come from the heart enter the heart. Because Joseph's words are born out of this knowledge, this conviction, this understanding of who God is and what God is up to. He's able to speak upon the hearts of the brothers because words that come from the heart enter into the heart. And you will be able to do that too the more you discover of God and the good that God is up to in our lives, in this world, no matter what. Lord, we bless you this morning. You have shown us ultimate kindness You are the one who has granted life. You are the one who has granted peace. You are the one who grants joy. You are the one who draws us into the presence of you, the God of the universe. We bless you this morning. Lord, we pray this morning that you might awaken us into that understanding, that conviction that trust, Lord, uh, in who you are and what you're up to, and that that would make a difference in the way we relate to others in our lives. Lord, that through that conviction and through that faith, we would be able to demonstrate the kindness that you so desire of us into the lives of those around us. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. 
Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. Our God and God of our fathers, we thank you for your word and your instructions. And uh, some of it is is absolutely wonderful and pleasurable and joyful. And some of it is very difficult. Lord, help us to look at all of it and understand all of it and be able to apply all of it to our lives, even that which is difficult. And I pray that you'd just give us your grace and your empowerment to get through those difficult things and to turn those into the joyful things. And we give this time to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, I guess that was kind of a hint on the message, huh? A little bit. Remember last week I said I really didn't like the last week's message? Well, here we go again, okay? And, and the reason is it has to do with uncomfortable stuff. Got to do that. Except... In the midst of all the uncomfortable stuff is some of the best news possible. Okay? So, we'll look at that. Now, we are in the middle of a study, well, not the middle, at the beginning of a study of spiritual warfare. The scriptures teach we have an enemy. Now, we're getting there, just not quite yet, sort of. The nature of the enemy is spiritual, not natural. The Bible teaches that there are three arenas of warfare. We're talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what does all that mean? That's that's why we're studying all this. What does that mean? Because people use jargon, these terms, you know, worldly, worldly, carnal, all these kind of things that, that the world around us, the people around us, what are you talking about? And so we need to understand what those things mean and sometimes try to use different terms because sometimes the same word has several meanings. So it, it can be confusing to some. But... The, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, remember what we said last week. All, all believers, all have struggles with the flesh. Okay? There is not one that does not. Okay? All do. Likewise, all believers have struggles with the arena of the world, which is our topic for today. Spiritual attacks come from outside of us. Now, there's stuff that comes from within us, which we talked about last week. We're talking about again today on some of this. But spiritual, the attacks come from outside of us. They're attempting, those attacks, to tempt us, to deceive us in some form, or to lure us into a place of being disobedient to God. Those are the attacks from the outside. Okay, But those attacks, what is the target of the attack? You have to, when we get into who, who is Satan... And where did he come from and all that? And in the weeks to come, he's been around a while. He's had a lot of time and a lot of experience to kind of understand us and our weaknesses. We have not been around a long time. The oldest person here, whoever that is, has not been here that long. Okay? He has a lot of experience in what he does. He's really good at what he does. He targets. What does he target? He targets our areas of weakness. Not our areas of strength. Our areas of weakness. Those things that are within us. Within us that are weak, and we all have those areas of weakness. They're different with different people, but we all, we all have areas of weakness. In the arena of the flesh, which was our topic last week when we gave you some uh, definitions, we'll give you more today, there are times, and this is really important, there are times when we don't need any help from the outside, from, from Satan and demons, okay? We just... Sin, real good without all that stuff, right? Okay. We don't need any other temptations. We don't need any deceptions from the outside. 
or any evil influence. Influence is a key word for today. Influence. From the world around us. Our own tendencies, okay, to go astray, to wander, to even dabble in those areas that bring us supposed pleasure, okay, but they're contrary to God's instructions. That stuff sometimes just on our own within us, uh, we can stir it up, okay, we choose to do it and so on without any other, other help, okay, and the Bible's clear on that. Now, I have to bring all that up because in, in, in the, those issues that we take the initiative to stir those, those negative things up inside of us and dwell on those things and act on those things, on these desires and tendencies, okay? Now, now that's our fault, okay? Paul calls that problem, he uses the word flesh, okay? We talked about that last week. He also calls it your old nature. Now, it would be nice if the old nature really was old in the sense of it's gone. But it's not. Okay, it's still there. That concept he talked about is still there, which is interesting. And I'm going to read to you a quote a little later from the Talmud. What Paul was teaching in Romans 7, Romans 7 is a very important chapter, was, was a, was a, it was true, but it was also a clear rabbinic teaching of his time on dealing with that issue. How do we, how do we account for the stuff that's in us? The sin that is in us, what is it? Where does it come from? What, what do you call that? And so on. Uh, he called it your old nature. Uh, uh, because, it's, you know, that, that term nature is interesting. The natural versus the spiritual. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 a lot and so on. But, but our, our, our nature is like who we are. Who we are. The, the, the nature of God we talk about. The nature of Satan we'll be talking about. But what are we like? And we have some good news and bad news within us. And as Paul wrote in Romans 7, he made that all that list in, in Galatians about the works of the flesh. And then he, he talked about himself. And, and he, he says, you know, I don't want to do this stuff. But I do it. And the harder I try not to do it, the more I do it. And, and, and he describes it. But he goes, oh, yeah, I know about that. Oh, yeah, I know about that. Think about when you, first, when you first became a believer. Okay, I'm going to quit doing all this stuff. Okay, and maybe there was a lot of victory there. And you quit doing a lot of stuff. But it keeps surfacing in your life and so on. You keep dealing with it. And sometimes you get the victory on one thing and something else pops up. And you're going, oh, man, when will it stop? You know what? It's not going to stop. That's the bad news part. It's not going to stop. Paul said at the end of that, of Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. Those words are really important. It was like, when we think of the word wretched, make it 20 times worse than, than what you're thinking. That's what, that, that's what the word means. That's how he was feeling emotionally because of the sin and, and the guilt that he felt. Now, if you are not convicted about sin and you don't have any guilt when you sin, there's a problem, a spiritual problem. Okay, That's a healthy thing. God... It makes you feel that way on purpose, so you will get right with him and confess that sin and make things right. But when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, and earlier he had made a statement about himself, and he was, you know, and I identify with this too, he goes, you know, when he's talking about people who sin and their problems, he said, by the way, I am the chief of all sinners. You know, why didn't Paul say, you know what, 
I'm the most important apostle of all time. I'm the smartest. I have the most education. I've done more. I've written more books. I've started more uh, congregations. You know what he said? I am the chief of all sinners. But I can talk to you about grace. And I can talk to you about forgiveness. I know all about that. Okay? But, but he was not putting himself on this pedestal saying, I have arrived. He's saying, you know what? Life is tough. Life is tough. And we're surrounded with, with tough stuff. And you're not going to get out of that until you get to heaven. You have to learn to deal with it. That's how Romans 7 ends. But you know what? You've start, got to start reading Romans 8. Because Romans 8 is one of those joy things. And, and we're not going there today, by the way. But as he ends Romans 7 with a question, who will save me from this mess that I'm in? And he says, you know what? Yeshua, the Messiah, will save me from this mess. He has given the victory. And he goes on and he t- turns the negative into a great positive. And, and Romans chapter 8 is one of the most uplifting and joyful chapters in the whole Bible. Because it talks about what he does for us. Because we can't do anything for us. But what he does is all these, he makes this wonderful list of all the stuff that he does that we can't do. All these great theological terms. So he turns it into the good news of saying, we have been rescued. We have been rescued. Okay, that's, that's the good news. But a definition of the, of the flesh, because it can get confusing. Okay, here's a new one from last week. All the thoughts, emotions, and physical urges that comprise human nature. Guess what? Some of those are good. Not all bad. It's true. Some of those are good. It's not all bad. However, we're not addressing the good ones. We're going to address the bad ones, okay? We're addressing that part of those areas that are in conflict with God's instructions. That's what we're addressing. Paul teaches clearly two opposing um, parts of us in Romans 7. They're opposing. One part wants to really please God. And one part wants to rebel. And there's, there's a war, he says, that, that's within us. Okay? Um, uh, do you feel that? Have you ever felt that? Do you feel like that? If you're, if you're really doing the right stuff, you're going to be under attack. And you're going to, there's, there, there's going to be some hindrances and you're going to get some of this other stuff. These temptations and influences and all kinds of stuff will come your way. Okay. Paul teaches that there's a principle within us some kind of a principle within us that is actually in opposition to God. He's talking to believers. He's talking to believers. That that still exists. There's something within us that's in opposition to God. That when you know the scriptures, and you, you've read it, and you know, and, and this is wrong, this is sin, and you do stuff anyway, okay? And, you know, there's something within us that that, that 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 is part of that nature that is kind of rebellious that says, and you're going to do stuff. It's in opposition to God's. You know, why can't we just be perfect and do everything? I haven't found a person yet. In fact, all the prophets and all the apostles agree there are none righteous. No, not one. So then all of us have a problem. Last week we walked through a, I had a 19-point sermon last week. How many do we have today? Hmm, I guess, I don't know. Because he gave us a list of the works of the flesh. That long list. Okay, remember I had a list of names to go along with that too? Last week we walked through that long list of the works of the flesh. It's found in Galatians chapter 5. But today we're looking at the next arena of warfare called the world. The world. There's overlap in these areas. There's similarities, but also some differences. And we're going to look at what those things mean. The flesh dealt with areas 
of weakness within us, areas of weakness within us. Sometimes those areas are not under God's control. When they're under God's control, we do okay. And you know what? Part The fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits is self-control. God is saying a Spirit-filled person has the ability to exercise self-control, in other words, not to sin. Okay, But when you move out of the spiritual into what Paul calls the flesh, the fleshly part, whoops, guess what? The balance switches, and now sin starts looking pretty good. Okay? Uh, it gets out of control. Who's in control? That's the issue. Who is in control? Is the Holy Spirit in control? Or something else? Well, okay. Our struggle in these areas uh, of weakness. Uh, we have struggle. It's a struggle. The word struggle is important. They are personal weaknesses. You know, they're personal with us. But they're targeted by evil forces. Number one. Number two, uh, they're things. It's not, okay, that, the temptation is coming to those areas. But they come into areas that kind of we would like to do anyway. And it kind of kind of reinforces that. Things in us that say, well, you know, I know that that's wrong, but I'd really like to do that. And it's different with different people. You know, if, if sin wasn't pleasurable, nobody would do it. Okay? There's pleasure in sin. But the Bible says it's only for a season. Then then the hammer comes down. Okay? But, but if it wasn't pleasurable, uh, uh, why sin? Okay, but but those things look enticing, and when the attacks come, they look more enticing. In fact, it looks more enticing than what it really is, because it looks like the grass is greener, kind of a thing. It's not greener. It's not greener. Okay, when you, when you cross those lines that that look like well, it's like into the garden. How can that tree, that wonderful fruit, how can that be wrong? Because God said that's why. Yeah, but look how beautiful it is. That was the temptation of Satan in there, too. Look at the look how beautiful it is. Look, at, look what it'll do for you. Wow, it looks good. Well, it tastes great. One of the things God said, don't do that. Okay, so things can look good, but when you go out there and do those things, the consequences are not worth how good that looked or whatever. But my point in all this, and we shared this last week, is that we cannot blame the devil. You know, he didn't make you do it. But we also can't blame the sin that's in us. Paul talked talk about the sin that's in me, that's housed inside of me, in my flesh. You can't blame that either. Okay. Remember what we said last week, and as we go through our teachings on spiritual warfare, Satan cannot cause anyone to sin. It would, it would be probably better for us if that could be the case because then we can stand before God and say, I couldn't help it. You can't judge me for that because I couldn't help it. That's not the way it works. You will stand before God and be judged because you could help it. Okay? You can't, no, no excuses at that point in time. He can't. He can only tempt. He can tempt. He can influence. Okay? But we sin because we choose to. We choose to do it. I must take the responsibility... For my sin myself. I, in other words, the key words, I have sinned. Okay, I did it. Okay, don't blame anybody else. Anybody else. I did it. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He, he did that right. What did he say? I have sinned. He didn't blame this or blame that. I have sinned. This is my fault. I've gotten into this mess myself. I dug the hole. Okay, that's, that's, that's important. Now, with all that, which overlaps last week's concept of the works of the flesh and so on, the world, 
the arena of the world. What does that mean? Okay, let's go to some actual Greek words on how it's used in, in Paul's time. How did Yeshua use it? How did Paul use it? Uh, John, especially, how, how did, did he use this? The word is cosmos. You, you've seen that that word, okay? Here's what it means. Order, arrangement for the word world, decor, beauty, flower, a symmetry, the regular order of, of, of things in the world, uh, structure, okay? It means kind of those things. Okay, however, the way it was used in Greek, the way the context is in Scripture, it goes a little bit further. It means an organized spiritual system under the influence of evil that runs the earth. That's how the word's used, okay? Influenced by that which is in opposition to all that is godly. There's an influence headed up by Satan himself to influence people. Okay, it's not, it's not within you, it's outside of you. But that strong influence that wants to move you to a place where it's not godly. It's an opposition to God. That's how the word's used. Now, some interesting related words. I'm digging a really deep hole right now. Do you see it? I'm just about to jump in. Because cosmos, what do you think of related words? Cosmos. Okay, here I go in the hole. Ready? Cosmetics. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, you got it. Cosmetics. Sorry, ladies. <clears throat> Cosmetics. Cosmopolitan. <laughs> Seriously. Cosmogony. has to do with beauty, even the word flower, and so on. So, does that mean that we should start right now having our ladies throw out all of their cosmetics? Mumble, 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 mumble. There are entire denominations who take these verses and do just that. Okay? I'll tell you what. I'm going to tell you right now, in a minute, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do on that. But I'll tell you what, how blessed I am, because Susan looks really good without makeup, okay? I've been so blessed without makeup, she looks wonderful. Do you know, men, men ladies, maybe we should have the men sit on this side, and, and the ladies on this side. You know, last week we, we talked about the Makitsa, you know, the curtain in the middle, in the Orthodox synagogue, men and women. Oh, you're going to talk about what you're going to give up now, huh? Okay. And we can, men, how much money could we save if they didn't use any cosmetics? Think of what you could buy. A Corvette. You know? Yes. Well, now wait a minute. See what I mean? Look at this. The women are supposed to be on this side over here. Okay. However, think of the alternative for a minute to no cosmetics. Think of the alternative. So I prayed about that last night. I said, Lord, you better speak to me because I'm going to get in real trouble here if one way or the other. And you know what he said? Remember Esther. I go, ah, she's got to be the most primped up woman of all time. One year of, of makeover. One whole year. Good enough for me. Okay. However, it was in a good taste. Okay, now that, I have some fine printer, pardon me. I've got to read what I wrote here. I can't, that's really small. The Bible teaches moderation. Okay. Uh, oh, you know what it teaches? which we're not into today, but I thought I'd bring this up because of the cosmetic thing. Um, it teaches about women, how they're supposed to use cosmetics and how they're to have their hair fixed. It doesn't. talks about this and how they're to dress. You know what it says? Okay, don't look like an immoral woman. That's what it says. So whatever culture you're in, if that's how they look, and you know, you know, 
kind of what I mean. The Bible says, don't look like that. Don't make it confusing. Don't, you know, don't look like something you aren't. It also says, uh, for men and women, don't look like the opposite sex. Okay? Men don't look like women. Women don't look like men. Okay? Women, I gotta tell you, you're doing a fine job of not looking like men. Okay? Keep up the good work. So, I'm out of the hole. It's okay to go to the Lancome Ganner, uh, tomorrow. Big sale. Uh, Veterans Day weekend. Big sale on makeup. No, it talks about just doing it in, in, in good, good taste, okay? Don't look like something you aren't. All right. Okay. We paint this picture of the word world. This, okay, now think about that. This organized spiritual system under the influence of evil that runs the earth. Let's get out of here. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? The space shuttle doesn't go very far. Okay, and I'm not going to get in it. Now, I have to interject. In this message, we're interjecting things. We're, we're going back and forth. So, God talks, uses that word. John uses it a lot. Yeshua used it a lot. Ooh, it's not good. It's bad. It's negative, right? How about this verse? For God so loved the world. That's the same word. Ooh, all that nasty stuff, and God loves it so much that he gave his son for it. Whoops. Maybe there's something to that. It's not all good, but it's worth saving. It's worth saving. Because it's people. We're talking about people that are under the influence. They're under the influence of evil. That can be changed. You were there once. The world system is an extension of our flesh. Okay, that provides an atmosphere, this is the world around us, to promote those desires within us that are in conflict with God. It just agitates something that's already there. Alright? The things around us can entice us to sin. That's the world. The things that are around us that can entice us to sin. It intensifies an already existing problem. If it's not bad enough that we have that problem, we go places and see things and hear things that intensify the problem. But you can't get out of the world. Okay, people have tried that. You know, there's been uh, uh, hermits and monks and all these things, and people who go and live in caves. Uh, the community at Qumran, the Essenes, because of the corruption of the temple, did that. They, they left Jerusalem and went to Qumran. And those of you who are on Israel trip <clears throat> with us, we, uh, we're going to go to Qumran. Now, did, did, because they were escaping from the evil and got together, how did things go? Well, they escaped that evil, but the stuff within them. And just those problems surfaced because they were a community. And we have their writings and their disputes and their arguments and their punishments and everything else for people that didn't do good. Well, you can't. If you're going to be with one other person, okay, you, you, you're going to have some of these problems. Okay, even when you're by yourself, guess what? You're going to have them too. So you can't get out of it. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. But the world around us surrounds us with what our flesh desires. Okay, and it influences us. That's the concept of, of, of the attacks in the arena of the world. So what do we do? What can you do about that? Some things you just plain can't help. You can't help it. But some you can. So those that you can, don't go places where your weaknesses are going to be enticed. Whatever your weaknesses are, 
if there's a place you can go where they're going to be enticed, don't go there. Okay? Um, sometimes you can't help it where you are when things happen. But you, you can't help the first temptation, but you can make it the last because you have the ability. Satan is called in Scripture, and we're going to get to all those things in, in the future in more detail, but he's called the God of this world, small g. That word means leader, okay? He's not God. That's in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's called three times by Yeshua. He's called the prince of this world. He's in charge of this system, okay? It's not just one country. It, it's all around, and he's, he's in charge of putting us under the influence, influencing us to go away from what is godly. Just take a look at what's been happening in our country. We've been on, it's, it's, you can chart it. You, you can chart it. I had a great quote, I'll bring it ne- next week, that, uh, uh, that shows just that. I'll bring it next week. Now, at Yeshua's temptation, which we're going to spend some time on that in a couple of weeks, Satan said in one of his temptations, he said, all the kingdoms of the world have been given to me. And I can give them to whoever I want, if you'll just fall down and worship me. Yeshua did not say, that's not true. That's what he said. He did not dispute that statement. That somehow Satan has the ability to influence the world, and he's doing it. Yeshua could have said, there's no way that's true. That's a lie. didn't say that at all. Okay? However, at Yeshua's trial, not his temptation, at his trial, he was asked, are you a king? What was his answer? My kingdom is not of this world. He used that word. In other words, it's a different system. Okay? It's not the one that's in place right now. I I am a king, but not of this. Okay? Not of this. And then as we read ahead, we get more of the good news because he talks about his kingdom will have a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Whatever that means, it means it's going to be different than this. A lot different than this, with him as king and him in charge. That's what it means. We don't know what that's going to be like, except it's really good. We, we know that. It's really going to be good. But with some of these principles that we just talked about, let's take a look at some scriptures and just make a couple of comments on each. We're, we're, we're going to look at a few. And in these, there's good news and bad news. But we have to look at it both. So take your Bibles and turn to First John. First of all, First John. This is only a sampling of how these words are used. First John 2, uh, 15 through 17. <clears throat> and John used this word a lot in, in, in the Gospels and in his epistles. He said in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Okay, now when you understand what he's talking about, it's one thing to be able to Live in it and put up with it. But he's saying, you know, people can love this. You can love this and the things that are in it you can love. Those things take you away from your your focus on God. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. And this is cool because in verse 16 here, he gives us an actual outline of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. This is exactly what happened. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Didn't say it was of the devil, did he? 
It's of the world. Those are the influences of the world around us to focus our attention away from God. Verse 17, here's about the, 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 the greener grass. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. <clears throat> the things that you do that are godly can have an eternal effect. An eternal effect. The things that aren't are for just now. Think about that. Okay, turn the page to chapter 4. First John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, talking to believers, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a, that's a good news verse. Okay, we can say, oh man, I'm not sure what to do about this flesh thing, and now we got the world thing here. <clears throat> what am I going to do? The answer is great. If, if you are born again, if Yeshua is, is at home in you, John is saying, it's a really important verse, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In other words, you, you, you have the ability to overcome all of those things. Okay, that's really good news. That's good news. Turn to page chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 4. <clears throat> Pardon me. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He who is, he, excuse me, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God. That's pretty clear. How do, what's the key that unlocks that door to, to have you overcome all those things? That, that sin. Believing that Yeshua is the Messiah is the key that opens that door. He's the one then. Okay, go ahead. Go down to verse 19. Uh, okay, now, now we'll go from a good news verse to a bad news verse. Verse 19. We know that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, interesting verse. That word sway means influence. The world is under the influence of the wicked one. Okay? That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. Okay. Turn to James. Back a little bit. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. That clears that up. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. There are desires, but the enticement can come from outside. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Whoops, this is bad news. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's talking about believers being deceived and getting involved in things that would lead, sin, that would lead them to death. Uh, John talks about that. There is a sin that leads unto death. What's he talking about? He, he's talking about a lot of stuff. I'll tell you what, I have done funerals for believers who have died of AIDS because their behavior, what they did, that's how they contracted the disease. Okay? That sin led to their death. There are others that will lead to your death. I've done funerals for people that have taken drug overdoses or uh, had too much to drink and got in a car accident. 
Okay? Sins can lead to your death or someone else's death. Okay? He's saying don't be deceived. If that's what Satan wants to do, get you to the place where your sin will actually lead to death. Don't, don't let that happen. James chapter 4. We're still in James. Turn the page. Starting with verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they, do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? See, not, not just Paul that talks about this. James does too. The war that, that, that's within us. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. He's saying you're asking for the wrong stuff. Okay? You ask amiss. That you may spend it on your own pleasure. Okay? So that, some people pray those kind of prayers. How about praying for somebody else? He gets pretty deeper. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that, and this is a key line, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, John said, don't love the world. James says, don't be a friend to it. You know, it can be your friend. Abraham was the friend of God. That's the opposite of this. Okay, friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's, it's, it goes against God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Drawing some lines in the sand here. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Here's what we do about this problem. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Those are the things that we do. Cleanse your hands, you, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Sounds like Yom Kippur, huh? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Boy, this is a, a Yom Kippur theme if there ever was one. When we take a look at sin and what it has, how has it affected us and other, other people, we should be on our faces. But he says when you do that, God then will lift you up at the end of verse 10. At the end of verse 10. So that's a matter of facing our responsibility, okay, before God and not blaming somebody else. But with that in mind, I mentioned a quote from the Talmud. I got this out of David Stern's commentary. And what this is, is from the oral law of Paul's time, which reflects, you know, when Paul was teaching Romans 7, not a new thing. They were dealing with that. Uh, the rabbis were trying to figure out how do we express this, how do we deal with it, and so on. Here's, here's an interesting quote. It fits exactly with Romans 7. Rabbi Yitzhak, is his name, said this. At first, sin is like an occasional visitor. Then, like a guest who stays a while. And finally, like the master of the house. Pretty good, huh? Isn't that, isn't that, that, that is... A true statement. The scripture says those very things in, in different ways. Okay, but what you see, it's like the invitation. You've invited this. Okay, the, the door wasn't barged open. and It was not an intruder. It was uh, always invited. When you invite those things, and I mentioned before, in my dealing with people who have demonic problems, to put it mildly, we'll get to other words later, 
we found that the root of those things were that, that, that they were open doors. People had invited this stuff. They were welcome visitors. Okay, and then they couldn't get rid of them. Don't invite. Invite the Holy Spirit into your life, into your body, into your mind, all that you are. Invite Yeshua, the Messiah, not other stuff. Okay? He'll come in. Other stuff will too. Don't invite him. And speaking of Yeshua, turn to John 16. See what he says on the subject. John 16. At the last Seder, he was giving some of these final instructions. In John 16, verse 33, this is a good news verse. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have shalom. That's the connection. In him you will have peace. You will have shalom. In the world, in contrast to in him, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's some of the best news possible. You know, no other religion says stuff like this. Whatever is coming to your mind, all the different people that wrote stuff and all, they don't have stuff like this. Okay, it's a list of do's and don'ts and, and mainly don'ts and all kinds of stuff. Yeshua is saying, you know, through me, you can have the victory. Turn to John 17, the next page. Verse 14. This is Yeshua's prayer. He's praying. He's praying for his, his followers. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I hope you've been kind of getting, as we talk about the uh, um, uh, definitions here, you know, Yeshua is saying, don't be of the world. John said, don't love the world. James says, don't be a friend of the world. Yeshua is saying, they are not of the world. I'm not of the world. There's a difference. There's a difference. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. That will be my prayer. Lord, get me out of here. That's my prayer. It doesn't work. Yeshua didn't pray that. He said, no, I don't want him to get out of here. I want him to be here. Why? Hmm. But that you should keep them. Now, here's the prayer. I do not pray that you, you should take them out of the world, but here's, here's his prayer, that you should keep them from the evil one while you're in the world. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's it. Yeshua intercedes for us and prays that the evil one, when he attacks us, that we will be able to resist and be victorious. Not that we split and, and not that we're not tempted. Okay? But that we can face it successfully. That's a good prayer. They are not of the world. That's, 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 that's good. Okay. You're, if you're a believer, you're not supposed to be. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by your truth. Important word. I mean, separate. Separate. We're going to end the message with that one in a few minutes. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Whoa. Scriptures are really powerful and important at this point in time. As you sent me into the world, oh, there, that nasty, horrible, bad place we've been talking about, Yeshua came into the world. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Oh, man. It's not, he sent us there. Out into all the mess that's there, we have been sent there by him. Oh, man. Why can't we just have a perfect missent community where nobody does anything wrong? Like, like here to dot, right? And for their sakes, 
I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He talks about a separation here, a separation and a difference. He also said one more thing to them. Not long later, he says, I want you to go into all the world. And when you're out there, I want you to make disciples of all the nations and teach them what I taught you. Bring them to faith in me. We have to go out in that, that nasty place to do those things. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his son for it, that they might believe. All of our messianic leaders of today, in time past, came out of that nasty world. They've all got a testimony about how God miraculously touched their heart and changed them. It's a miracle. It's happening. But you know how it happened? Through other people telling them. Okay? Fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, Yeshua said about, you know, early in his ministry to his disciples, he says, you're the light of the world. Wait a minute, the world's in darkness. Yeah, but you're the lights. When you go into a dark room with a light, what happens? The darkness kind of goes away. Oh, you're the influence. Oh, what about that? What about that evil influence? Yeshua said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who abides in me shall not walk in darkness, abiding in him, but shall have the light of life. Now, if he's the ultimate light, and we are lights, how does that fit? Because the word, what does the word messianic mean? You know what the word means? Messiah-like. Paul said, you are ambassadors of Messiah. You're supposed to be kind of like him. So you go out there as lights to the world. Isaiah said, we're to be the believers, a light to the nations. A light to the nations. Why? Because God so loved them. Hmm, that's the motivation. They're worth saving. They're worth, they're in bad shape, but they're worth salvaging. You were there too. Aren't you glad he saved you? This whole thing we're talking about on these issues, and, and, and they're uncomfortable because they're kind of personal, you know, they're, they're home. It's like people saying, how does he know that about me? I'm saying that about you. How do you know that about me? We're all in this together, okay? There is none righteous, no, not one. But it's about how to live. These things were written, okay? It's about how to live and how not to live. We as believers, as, as ambassadors of the Messiah, are supposed to live different. Not weird, okay? It's okay to go to the Lancome counter tomorrow, get things on sale, make sure it's on sale, okay? You get free gifts, ladies. You may get gifts at the Lancome counter, free gifts. <clears throat> the men that are on this side, the women on that side, okay, we have, we have the McKeats in the middle. I want to get a lead McKeats so you can't hear what's on this side. Some of that stuff's really good, guys. You know, put that on your face and stuff. It takes away the wrinkles. Use it every day. That's right. We're to live different, not weird. God gave us his instructions, and with that came the responsibility. If you live by this, you're going to be different. And sometimes people aren't going to like you, what you have to say. You see it on TV all the time, don't you? When people get up and stand for, for the truth, they get ridiculed and laughed at and nonsense. And, and all. But you know, what's, in, what's interesting is that they're, they're, they're in places the tide is changing. And people have been saying the right thing for long enough and people are starting to say, you know what? There might be some truth in that. 
Have you seen some of that recently on television? So these people that are standing for the truth are beginning to make a difference, are beginning to make a difference. You see, we talked about being under the influence, being under the influence. The whole concept of of the world, you are under the influence of the world around you, of the flesh stuff within you, of the attacks of the evil one. You're under the influence. But you're supposed to be the influence, the other influence. You're supposed to influence them. Not in judgment, not in not in in this stuff. You're all going to perdition, friend. No, in, in love and patience and understanding and gentleness, the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. How about just being nice to people? G- gentleness, meekness, self-control. That's the you know that's the next line from where we ended last week in, in Galatians five. That's what we're supposed to be. Not that other list. When you're controlled by the Spirit, do people want to be like that? You know what? That's how I became a believer. I was young once. It was a long time ago. And I saw in other people qualities that I thought were really attractive. And I thought, you know what? That's what I would like to be like. Because they were believers. They were committed. They were for real. And that attracted me. And the next thought is, well, how do I do this? And if you hang around long enough, you get to hear how you do this. Pretty soon the question is, do you want to do this? I go, well, yeah, I want to do that. Came to faith in Yeshua. But it was the influence of other people on my life. None of them were judging. None of them were pointing out my sins. They were loving, but they were for real, and they really believed. And they lived a life according to Scripture. You know what? That made me kind of want to be like them. I looked at my other friends. I go, you know what? I don't think I want to be like them. I think I want to be like them. So you're supposed to be the influence. And you can't do it if you're a hermit in a cave somewhere. You do it when you open your home to people, when you invite people here, when we fellowship. You know, we we should be mindful of bringing in people who are not believers. Okay? Not judging them for stuff that they don't know about, but loving them. God so loved them. We should so love them and share with them Yeshua is the Messiah. We're to influence the world for godliness. So the question is, are you under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Is your life expressed in the fruit of the Spirit? Is that what people see when they look at you? Or is what they see the works of the flesh? Is that what they see? They don't want to be like that. They already are. Why change? Who do you submit to? You know, Paul said there's a war. Which side do you submit to? The world? Some do. Get caught up in it. The flesh? Some do. Satan himself? Some do. Or Yeshua? You can submit to him. Because he has overcome the world. I love this verse. Yeshua said, at a failure, someone, he said, you know, I, I understand that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He fully understands that. And that person who fell became great. Okay, he became great. He fully understands our struggles. 
He fully understands our weaknesses. And because of that, he's provided fully for all of them. Remember the verse last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you. Okay, that will get you because God has provided in every case a way of escape. That's provision. Okay, but you can still choose to, to do it yourself, but you can't say I couldn't help it. But in all these things, in Romans chapter 8, so many other places, what Yeshua said, we, what we shared this morning, he provides the solution to the problem if we submit to him. We have it. We, we've got it. The whole thing on worldliness. By the way, sometimes the word that appears in the Bible that says worldly is the same word for fleshly, for, for the flesh. So they're interchangeable terms at times, depending on the context. But worldliness is simply a matter of the heart. Okay, it's right here. It's, in, it's inside of you. It's not, out, it's not really out there. Okay, all that's out there needs to be saved. But what's in here? Okay, what's in here? Paul talks to some people in First Corinthians, Corinth, in chapter three, who made the decision to to just uh, stay with the stuff that's kind of in here. He, he used the term in our King James Bible. It says carnal. That means fleshly. He called them spiritual. They're believers. He called them spiritual babies. He says, you know, you can't even be fed because you've chosen. This is there. You've chosen not to grow. Because, and he said, and still I can't feed you because you've chosen not to eat the right stuff because you've chosen to be here in this fleshly condition. I pray that someday you'll be spiritual. It's your choice. That's what he told him. Praise God for Second Corinthians. Okay? But what then is the solution? What do we do? Okay, turn to Romans chapter 12 for what we do. It's that great pivot chapter in the book of Romans, which is Paul's doctrinal statement. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, he calls them his brothers, by the mercies of God, that you do something, that you present your bodies. How many sins do you commit outside of your body? Not many. Everything's in. We're all wrapped up in here right now. For not right now. If God has your body, he's got you. That you present your bodies. What do you call it? A living sacrifice. Jews know a lot about sacrifices, but they're all dead. He said, no, no, this is different. God doesn't want dead sacrifice. He wants a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Oh, you present your body to him. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, he said, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. That word service is the word for worship. It's your it's it's a reasonable act of worship. It just simply makes sense to do that. That's the will of God. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, to be in God's will. So Paul, back in Romans 7, he's moving up to Romans 12. Oh, wretched man that I am, what do I do? This is it, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yeshua does not ever call you to go and die for him. He did that for you. He calls you to live for him, which is ten times harder. 
Jesus would go die for him, wouldn't it, sometimes? To live for him in this world and be the light that shines. And to do that, if you're, it's, it's a living sacrifice, all right. Because I'm denying myself all the pleasures of the world. Big deal. He's building a mansion for you that's unbelievable for eternity. Just wait for that one, okay? Important words here as we end. Do not be conformed to the world. The word that he uses for conformed, conformity, is the word for chameleon. You know the lizard that changes color? When you put it on a brown carpet, it turns brown. When you put it on the green carpet, it turns green. So on. People are like, he's talking to believers. Some are like that. Wherever they go, they kind of blend into their surroundings. And when they, when they go to, to the synagogue, they do all the liturgy, they do the dance, the music, and they do all this. But then, the next day, or even that night, they go to a party, or a bar, or somewhere, and blend in with all that, and do what everybody else does. And who are you? Who are you? And wherever they are, they blend in. Paul says, don't do that. Wherever you are, stand out. Stand out. Now, I have an advantage over a lot of you. When I, I'll give you some examples. Like, if I go to a, if I'm invited to this big party somewhere, okay, it's, it's an interesting advantage. And everybody's eating, drinking, and being merry, and so on, and, okay, and I'm looking like everybody else. I might have a suit and tie on, whatever. People come up to me. What do they say to me? What do you do for a living? Right there, I'm set apart. Okay? I lead a Messianic Jewish country. All of a sudden, I'm now different just by that statement. Really? What, and say, tell me what that means. I start explaining it, and all of a sudden, now they expect me to live according to what I just said and not be like everybody else around there. Okay? I, I do have to manage that. And wherever I go, people ask, what do you do? Okay? Okay? But what do you do? Who are you? See? See, and what you can do in places like that when people come up to you is in the conversation, gently lead into the place where you share who you really are and how you got there and how he can or she can get there too. It's called witnessing. You're supposed to go out into the world and do that, not hide from it all. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be the chameleon and blend in. Stand out. How? He tells us the next word. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is another big picture word. It's the Greek word metamorphosi. Sound familiar? We can get our little kids out of the back and ask them, what's that word? Oh, metamorphosis. That's the Greek word. What's that? Oh, that's when you take a caterpillar and stick it in the jar, and in a couple of weeks, it turns into a butterfly. How'd that happen? I don't know. Sure looks different, doesn't it? That's the point. You look really different. And you're beautiful. You're, you're a butterfly. You can fly. You have all these colors versus the worm. Okay? But you're transformed into that. You can be conformed to the world around you. Okay, it's interesting words he uses. You can look like a lizard or you can look like a butterfly. What do you want to look like? What attracts other people? The butterfly, I'll tell you that right now. It's the butterfly that, that attracts other people. Okay? Okay. Single women and single men. Okay? If you're at these parties... Maybe what attracts, okay, for, for women, what, what the men are being attracted to is someone that will be like the world. And there's pressure for, for, for you to be like that. And that may be what they want. 
for now. But what do they want to marry and spend their whole life with? They want the butterfly. They don't want the lizard. Okay, when you stand for biblical principles, that is far more attractive to a man than being like the world. The ones that don't matter anyway are, are going to just go away. But the ones that really are something are going to hang around and say, you know what? I respect that. And I respect you. You, tell me about this. Because they want the butterfly. They want the woman that's godly. Okay? Not the one that's worldly. Remember that. Be a butterfly. Don't be a lizard. That's what this is saying. Present all that you are to Yeshua and live for him. And he promises to take care of the rest of the stuff. Because he, even though we're in the world, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Our God and God of our fathers, I thank you that even though we can get depressed at the dilemma we're in with the sins in our life and those influences around us and all looks lost, you have brought hope in every circumstance. You can give us the victory. You've given us the things to do, the things not to do. And most important of all, you tell us what you do. Lord, I thank you for that, that wonderful list of all the things that you do for us. I pray we would submit to you and all that you are. And when we go out into that world, we'll be that light that shines, that, that covers the darkness. And that's attractive. Lights attract. And I pray that the attraction would be you in us. And when people say, what is it about you? What is that about you? You can say, it's Yeshua in me that's shining through. I'm his ambassador. Let me tell you about him. Thank you for the commission to go into the world and to be that light in Yeshua's name. Amen. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. The origins of man begin when God creates Adam and then Eve. Man is given dominion over the earth. He's expected to reflect God's character to all things that are created. Man falls into sin. God sets in motion a redemptive plan, a pattern of symbols that we are supposed to identify that God alone is the one who saves. He's the one that provided the first skin, the one who provided the first sacrifice, the one who provided the plans for the ark. But sin continued to build until such a time that God felt it was time to judge the earth for that sin, and all was wiped out except for Noah and his family on the ark. Then God has to delegate to Noah the same thing he had delegated to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Show the earth of my goodness and my character. And Noah becomes the origins now of mankind. It's not as if there were not other important figures that God drew close to like Adam and Noah. But you could read about Enoch or, or uh, even Job. People that God drew extremely close to early on in the scriptures. But by the time you enter the realm of Genesis 12, God is drawing extremely close to a man named Avram, Abraham. Abraham is not like everyone else in his time period. God chooses Abraham to develop a covenant relationship with. He extends the offer to Abraham and his family line. He extends to him the covenant of the circumcision. 
He extends to him the promised son, Isaac, the miracle son. He extends to him the promise of the line of the Messiah coming through his family. He says to Abraham that you will be a blessing to the whole world, and the whole world will be blessed through you. And he extends the covenant of the land of Israel to Abraham. This covenant extension goes on to Abraham's children, but it goes on a singular fashion. Abraham receives the covenant offering and passes it on to Isaac, not necessarily Ishmael. Now, God blesses Ishmael. Don't misunderstand. But this particular covenant was passed on to Isaac in a singular fashion. And from Isaac, it was passed on to Jacob, though Jacob was a twin. Esau was not necessarily connected to this covenant dynamic, though God clearly blesses Esau when you read the text. The covenant is is passed on singularly. Even when Jacob blesses the sons, all of the sons of Jacob, it appears that Judah gets a blessing. That sounds a little bit better than everyone else's. Some of those guys got kind of a raw deal. If any of you are familiar with how God went about blessing the sons of Jacob, so-and-so will be like a donkey. What? That's not the blessing I was hoping for when I entered the tent, Father. <laughs> Judah gets, you know, the crown, the throne, the scepter, and all the things. You know, oh, that's a, that's a nice one. Not the donkey so much. And it stayed singular. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Our people went into slavery in Egypt. But when they come out, God appoints Moses to to be the deliverer that brings them out. And by the time we arrive at Exodus 19, this covenant dynamic that God is establishing with Abraham and his line is now offered in a new way. I want you to hear me. The same covenant is offered in a new way. It is no longer singular, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. But now under Moses' leadership, Exodus 19, it's offered to all of the sons of Jacob. All of the sons of Israel. And of course, the elders of Israel, they speak amongst themselves. They come to agreement that we will accept God's offer. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will obey his word. And then all of the tribal families get to fall under the blessing. This is a brand new way that that covenant is being expanded, not only to the individual family line now, but now to a nationality. The whole national collective group of Israel gets to receive the covenant in a new way. From there, we have the receiving of the law, the deliverance out of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea. But still, this early set of covenants established a certain paradigm of two groups. Basically, as you study scripture, you're going to study two groups. You're going to study the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people. We could even say the Gentile people. And when we are mentioning Gentiles tonight, I want you to be very clear that though there can be two interpretations of the word Gentile, I'm not intentionally going to use Gentile as that which describes pagan. I'm only going to use Gentile tonight as describes not Jewish. Okay? Can you follow me in that? So we have the two groups that are set up now. Either you fell under the covenant of what was offered from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and then finally to all of the tribes and the millions that fell under that that covenant. Or you didn't. And if you didn't, then you didn't particularly fall in the group called the Jewish people. You fell in a different group called the Gentile people. As we move forward in Scripture, we understand that that can create a little bit of friction. But what about us? 
we might say, if we're not Jewish. What about us? How do we get in that family? How do we push our way in if we were not born into this family? I want to read from our main text tonight, Ephesians chapter 2. Bear with me. It's a lengthy passage, verse 8 through 22. But it's the meat of where we're going to focus tonight. It's a new covenant concept. It's not a different concept, but a new offering of the same idea. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in the Messiah Yeshua to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope. And without God in the world. But now in the Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. One new man. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with the Messiah Yeshua himself, As the chief cornerstone in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This dividing wall of hostility. Let's be really clear. According to this context, the dividing wall of hostility was not referring to the law. It's referring to the offer of covenant. That one one that was in the covenant would say, I'm special. One that was outside of the covenant might say, hey, what about me? And hostility could rise. We certainly see that hostility between the sons of Jacob, the sons of Isaac, even, and the sons of Ishmael. But it's not primarily the wall of hostility. It's not dealing with the law per se. The law of God is good. David says the law of God is perfect. So does Paul. So it's not the law that's being described here as somehow problematic. But the covenants itself, those that were far away from God, can now be brought near to God. So we should first understand the context of the writing. The overall concept is that the two groups would now be able to work together as one group. But it was very clear to point out that both groups are chosen by grace. Neither Jews nor Gentiles had done or have ever done anything to demand to demand God's closeness to them, his grace, or his gifts. Neither Jew nor Gentile. Actually, as you study the text further, you'll find that God even speaks to the Jewish people and says to them, it's not because you were so great that I chose you. It's the opposite. 
But, but that was a day of good news. That you were so off that I chose you. It's like dividing up on basketball teams, football teams here in Israel, soccer, for those of you that don't know what football really means. <laughs> and saying to someone, hey, I pick you as my first round draft pick. And, and the person that's chosen, wow, he really wants to be with me, he wants me to be on his team. I must be a great player. No, actually, you were the worst player of the bunch. But I realized that I could train you. And this is what the Jewish people had to accept. It wasn't because they had done anything so great that God was demanded to do something for them. But so it was with the Gentiles. What had the Gentiles done that was so great that God would offer covenant to them? The answer is equally nothing. Jew and Gentile had equally nothing to do to invoke God's blessing upon themselves. So the passage is quick to point this out. So what are some of the key points? Well, let's look at group one. Let's consider group one here, the Jewish people. We need to learn about this group one. Who were they? How were they connected? Romans 9, 1 through 4, gives us a little description. It says, I speak the truth in the Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the sake of my people, those of my own race the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever. Praised. Amen. It's a pretty good description of our Jewish people. In synopsis, theirs was the adoption as sons. If somehow that has ever slipped by you and you didn't realize that the Jewish people were adopted, then it could greatly alter your theology. The Jewish people were adopted. You said, wait, wait, I thought they were the, the natural children. No, they were adopted. We are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no natural son once sin has come into our world. Yeshua being probably the only one we could describe as the natural son. But here, the Jewish people are being adopted. He gives them the divine glory, the covenants, the law, the temple, the promises, the patriarchs. And it's from the patriarchs that we get the rich heritage of the Jewish people for which we want to focus in our heritage service. But let's look at group number two. What about the rest of us, those not considered Jewish? Well, here it says that in the beginning, we were considered foreigners. We were the uncircumcised. We were separated from the Messiah. We were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. We were foreigners to the covenants. We were without hope. We were without God. But through Yeshua, the two groups have now become one new man, meaning that now we together are fellow citizens as God's people. We are both members of God's household. We are both part of the building of God's temple in the age to come. And now we both have access to the Father. You see, the wall that was coming down was primarily that which was dishonoring to one another. And the wall that was coming down was the barrier for which a Gentile could not draw close to God. But now through the blood of Messiah, those that have accepted Yeshua's work, that wall comes down. It was illustrated, even in a physical realm, that at the time of the death of the Messiah, the curtain 
in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else was torn, becoming a physical symbol of what was happening on a spiritual and universal level, that that wall was coming down, that we now, the foreigners, have now been invited in. Well, that's probably what happened when the 12 tribes were finally invited in to that special family of Abraham. That same pattern where God uses Abraham for the initial introduction, and then he says, but that was never my intent, was to keep it only singular. It was always my intent to, once we understood properly the covenants, we would then open that up to all of the family tribes. And then once the family tribes understood their role correctly, we would then open it up to the rest of the world. It's always been God's intent that that curtain was not a block for us to draw close to God. But we've both been adopted, friends. We read it before. I'll reiterate it now. For the Jews, Romans 9, verse 4. It says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. But what about to the Gentiles? Ephesians 2, verse 9. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Why is this so important as we move forward in understanding our call as both Jew and Gentile working as one new man? Why is it so important that we put it in our vision statement? Why is it so important that we would even speak on it for a whole series? Because it's not until we understand that we are all included in the family of God, that we have all been adopted, that we can finally put down insecurity. We can finally put down jealousy. Or envy. And tonight I think that's the message for all of us. Is that once we understand that both Jew and Gentile, both groups were, were adopted together, that we can serve together equally. Maybe in distinctive ways, but we serve together. Can you imagine a family having adopted two different children and those two adopted children fighting about which one was the more important child? Well, the problem is that sometimes we found in the, in the history of our people that we forgot we were adopted, as if we were the natural child and somehow you were the adopted child. And God warns of that arrogance. And then conversely, we get into the book of Romans, and though the majority of the Jewish nation had rejected Yeshua as the Messiah, and the Gentiles had, had started to receive Yeshua in great numbers, Paul has to write and remind the Roman congregation, hey, Gentiles, hold up. Don't become arrogant. Remember, though we're both adopted, there was one that kind of came into the household a little earlier than you. They might know the ropes a little bit around here. You might want to listen to what they've learned. And so God is not only adopting both groups, but he's warning both groups about arrogance. But tonight we have the opportunity, as we understand this, to release ourselves from insecurity. On the one hand, to be a Gentile in the kingdom of God is a wonderful thing. Do you understand God didn't make a mistake? Unfortunately, I've met lots of people who act as if they believe God made a mistake. They were supposed to be Jewish, they would say. You know, I don't envision that they cried out to God, Hey, God, oh, goodness, God, what did you do? Well, I don't know. Let me, let me check my list. I, I thought we had you down in the right group there, and that's our fault. You know, there was a lot of people. There was a lot of births that month, and we just happened to have you in the wrong one. That's our fault. It is great to be a Gentile in the kingdom of God. We have the calling, we have the special calling of provoking the Jewish people to jealousy back to their God. When God looked out over the world and said, my people have abandoned me, 
How am I going to bring them back? What's my chosen method? I'm going to choose the Gentile believers to do it. And we receive this amazing calling. And then we, as, as the Jewish people, we, we also have to receive the security of our own calling that, that when we come to the Messiah, guess what? We get to keep being Jewish. We don't have to buy into something that's been told to us that says, hey, once you give your heart to the Messiah, you can throw everything out that came before. Why would we do that? The Bible describes everything before as rich, as valuable, as a great heritage. Why would we throw all of that out? We've seen in history what happens when people throw out the heritage of the scriptures, right? It doesn't work out very well. It's the rootedness of our calling. It's the rootedness of our heritage that, that keeps us in line with God's plan. And we need to walk in a high level of security, putting down insecurity, putting down jealousy and envy that we might walk together and become the one new man that we were supposed to be. God doesn't make mistakes, friends. He makes things beautiful. He makes them with great purpose. He also makes things unique. God is not a God of homogenization. Are there any twins tonight? Are there any identical twins tonight? Even even in identical twins, God gives a, a unique marker that each one has a place in his kingdom. And that's the closest we can get to being homogenized is this idea of an identical twin or triplet. But even then, God gives a unique, distinctive feature to each one. Romans 12, 4 and 5 reads this way. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in the Messiah, we, though we are many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. First Corinthians 12, verse 12, follows that up. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with the Messiah. And I want to remind us of a very, very important term when we talk about the one new man, and that is called distinctive value. Distinctive value means you can be different and yet equally valuable. You might have different features and be equally valuable. You might have different callings or different giftings, and never have you lost your status of value in the kingdom of God. But the enemy will try to deceive, and he'll try to tell you that if you don't look like someone else, you don't act like someone else, you don't have the gifting of someone else, or you don't have the calling of someone else, or you don't have the role or the authority of someone else, that somehow you are now less than. But that means you don't understand distinctive value. Distinctive value shows up in all kind of physical ways. If you like sports, you could understand that on a team, you certainly have great distinctive value. That if I have the ball and I need to get the ball into the goal, if there's no one to pass the ball to, my team is not very successful. So I pass the ball to the next person. But had I not passed the ball to them and they stood there alone, they would not be very valuable. We only had full value as teammates when we shared the ball. So it is in, in projects. You ever done a project with someone? Some of us in the room, gentlemen, maybe we wanted to be able to do the project on our own. I know what that feels like. You wanted to be able to complete it on your own. You really didn't need help. You also probably didn't need the directions. <laughs> Until you were about halfway done with the project, you decided the directions might be wise. <laughs> For some reason, these four leftover screws probably should have gone somewhere. <laughs> and I don't know why the shelf was upside down. It's just it ended up that way. The manufacturer made a mistake, honey. I don't know. Something was wrong. 
But sometimes you need someone to hold something for you in a project. How about a marriage? Distinctive value is huge in marriage. The husband and the wife, they're not the same. They're different. They have different callings, different roles, different authority, different giftings. Neither has lost value in God's eyes. Equally value. Distinctive in their calling, but equally value. Equal value in God's eyes. And so it is with Jew and Gentile. Neither is less or more valuable than the other. The Gentiles don't receive the word of God without the Jews, and the Jews, in in the end, don't receive the word of God without the Gentiles. This one new man has to work together. We are a congregation who has the opportunity, I want you to hear me, that from Jerusalem to the rest of the world, as the word of the Lord goes forth from Jerusalem, we have the opportunity at King of Kings to show the world how this is supposed to be done. Now, we could say Jews are better or Gentiles are better or locals are better or international visitors are better. And we would have missed the whole point that Paul is bringing out, that we have the chance to set this right with the anointing that comes forth from Jerusalem. This is a big message because you know what comes forth from Jerusalem? Everything. The word of God, the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit. When God wants to initiate something new and powerful, it generally happens in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And we have this opportunity, friends. You know, what will it look like when the world gets on King's Community Live (laughs) and says, oh, not everyone at King of Kings is Jewish? I didn't know that. But they're worshiping together in perfect unison? They're calling on the name of the Lord and the Spirit of God is falling on them equally, as the Apostle Paul found out? You see, in the beginning, the apostles didn't quite catch that vision. At least Peter didn't. And God was gracious to show him. Paul saw it a little bit earlier. And then we enter the story of Cornelius. And Paul says amongst the believing Sanhedrin or the the apostolic council, what was I supposed to do? It didn't matter what my theology was. When the Holy Spirit decided to fall, he decided to fall. And the Holy Spirit became the great leveler. Everyone, same value. No, God, no, no, God. We're the Jews, though. And God said, yes, but don't forget I adopted you. You're my adopted sons. And I'd like to adopt another son now. Now be a good big brother and receive this new adopted son into the family. But this is where the enemy can can steal and rob with insecurities, with envy and jealousy that someone else has and you don't have. And so God must love you more than, uh, must love them more than you or however it may be. Maybe you're looking at it from the arrogant perspective. Oh, look what I have. They don't have. I can guarantee you the role that I'm serving in right now by the grace of God, that in God's eyes, this role is equally valuable to everybody that's working back there that you don't see. From the people in the cameras to the sound booth to the live stream to the people who cleaned up this auditorium before we came in tonight. In God's eyes, Different roles, different giftings, different stage of life, different authority, same value. Praise the Lord. Now, you say, how do you, how do we embrace this security? Because you don't primarily find your first identity in yourself. You primarily find your first identity in Yeshua. He will determine who you are. You are a son of the king, a daughter of the king. You are saved by grace. You are covered by the blood. You are forgiven by his atonement. You are a receiver of everlasting life. You will be an inheritor of all things of the age to come. You will be a building block in the temple of God. That's who you are in Yeshua. Praise God for the distinctions. So we'll know what to do. So we'll know what our calling and our role is. 
But never should we look down upon or up upon anyone else's calling. Distinctive value in the kingdom of God. Our primary identity is in Yeshua as we're both adopted sons and daughters. Now this this distinctive value can sometimes express itself in different ways. I said to you, God is not a necessarily a God of homogenization. We look around this room, and you're lovely people. You're very lovely people. We have some Mizrahis, Fadim, Ashkenazi are here tonight. Those from the nations are here tonight. <laughs> Those from other continents may be here tonight. And you're welcome to be here because we believe in the one new man. But our expressions might be different, and we need to honor those differences of expression. You know, when I was on my, my, my trip to Ethiopia, Pastor Kokeb, can I get an amen? I knew he was up there. They didn't worship the same way I had grown up worshiping. They did a little dance that was a little different, Pastor. A little shimshabop right here. Right? The whole time. The whole time we worshiped, it was right down here. Knees. You got to get your knees into it. When you're in Ethiopia, the knees have to move. <laughs> it's very different than the congregations and churches I grew up in. Okay, I will show you. Okay. <laughs> if anybody sends me a judgmental email this week. The Lord blessed me with two fathers, one natural by birth and one who brought me into his family, became my, my, the acting father role in, in my life. But, but my birth father uh, pastors a church in Louisiana, USA, and it's a charismatic church. And it's interesting that when the Ethiopians move their knees, it's kind of loose. You know, it's kind of confident. My dad... <laughs> He gets stuck in a certain position. And we grew up, and this was the dance that my dad would do when he was really on fire for God. He'd get one leg up in the air, and he'd just get kind of stuck there. And he'd move to the other side of the stage, and he'd, he'd give it to God again right here. I was a bold child, so I asked him one time, Hey, Dad, what's wrong with the other leg? Doesn't it want to worship too? What's, what's wrong with the other leg? I can confidently say that because my dad is a little bit old school. He doesn't use a computer, and he's not watching on King's Community Live. So it's our little secret. Please don't forward this to him. Nobody show him on his phone. God created us with different giftings, callings, and destinies. We would do well to honor those differences. The differences of style. The differences of expression. The differences of language. Skin tone. And while we certainly want to draw close in our theology and doctrine as much as possible, you know God has even used differences of theology to bring truth out? In the restoration movement, God has used various Branches. Now, we don't want to condone the, the separation in a bad relationship sense. But we've seen God use the restoration process of things that were lost from the body be brought back to the body through differences. 
for a time, there were not a lot of people doing full immersions in water. A lot of us had moved to the sprinkling technique. For a time, there were not a lot of people pursuing the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember? Those were for the old days. And then the Pentecostals said, hey, wait a second. Well, the Baptist brought in, wait a second, let's go under the water here. We had, we had moved into error at a time where we thought it, it was no longer important how we live. We were so much under grace that that's all that mattered. And so the Puritan said, uh, I think living a holy life is important. God certainly wouldn't move upon our bodies to do something strange, one might have said in the old days, until the Quakers were hit by the power of God. Maybe the, the gift of tongues was at some point left out, but God used a process of restoration through different means to bring that back into his body. And that's only honored if we will honor the differences among us. This is an operation of the one new man. Letting God use your teammate next to you to elevate his name. Remembering that you don't have to be the same. Now, when we're talking about basic morality and the new covenant principles, sure, we have doctrines of faith and the creeds of faith that we want to stand on together in unity. But our expression might be a little bit different from group to group. And we honor that here at King of Kings. The Jewish people have a deep, rich heritage, as we've mentioned. And that is going to become the propulsion of our heritage service. We gave a tagline, enjoying the Jewish roots of faith and worship. Let's enjoy them. The authors apparently did. The authors of the Bible apparently did. Let's live like them. Are we saying everyone has to do that? No, we're not. Maybe this is the kind of service you're more accustomed to and you like. Great. Some of you are saying, I'd love to go a little bit deeper into the tradition or the, or the Jewish roots of faith. I want to understand where it came from. I want to participate in some of the symbolism and worship style. Great for you, the heritage service you might enjoy. And either way, we can honor one another and defeat the enemy who only wins if we're divided. Naturally, Jewish life looks a little bit different than, Jew, than Gentile life. And even as believers, do you understand, friends, that that is okay? The Jews will celebrate their new year, biblically speaking, next week. And you as a Gentile, if you're in the room, you are welcome to join if it's on your heart to join. If it's not on your heart to join, you don't have to join. And that's the beauty of the one new man, that you're invited. You're invited into the family. And we're not going to be arrogant toward one another. There's validity in the various streams of the body of Messiah. And if you're interested in the heritage service where we learn to go a little bit deeper into the Jewish richness, that we enjoy Jewish roots of faith and worship, then come and celebrate with us. I'll tell you where the future of our vision is going. I started uh, this evening's sermon at the beginning with our vision. You know where we're going in vision? That by next year, we do expect to have not only a Hebrew-speaking congregation in the family, not only an English-speaking congregation in the family, not only the Heritage Service, which is a 50-50 English and Hebrew-speaking service and congregation, we expect to have the King of Kings Arabic congregation. In the near future, if the Lord continues to anoint our progress, we expect to have the King of Kings Ethiopian congregation here in the family. That's in addition to planting the new congregation in Herzliya that's coming up this August as well. Because we have the opportunity. What do you think the message is to the world? And I'll close here. When someone comes to Jerusalem and visits or they watch online and they say, they worship in Hebrew? 
and in English. They worship in a charismatic or style like this or a Jewish heritage rich style like this. Or they worship in an Arabic style and language or an Ethiopian style and language or a Russian style and language. What are they doing over there in Jerusalem? And we're saying we want to be examples of the one new man to show the world what is possible in God when your primary identity is found in Yeshua. We'll close with this. Worship team, you can make your way. We are more effective as a body when we, as each person, we're confident in our role within the family. When we set aside insecurity and primarily find out identity, that our identity is in Yeshua. We're all adopted as sons and daughters, and we're welcomed into Yeshua's family by grace. It is the enemy who would like us to feel inferior or less than someone else. It is the enemy who would want us to be envious of someone else, their roles or their giftings. We should receive distinctive value in the way we were created and in the way God established the destiny of our lives. Once we have confidence in our identity, then we can accurately understand the power of Yeshua's salvation in verses like this, Galatians 3.26. For all of you who were immersed in the Messiah have clothed yourself with the Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in the Messiah if you belong to the Messiah. Then you are finally Abraham's seed and the heirs according to the promise. Distinctive value. It's not saying it's not important that if you're if you're Jewish, or it's not important that you're Gentile. It's not important that you're male, or it's not important that you're female. It's the enemy trying to destroy distinctive lines, friends. And you can see that in today's culture where a man doesn't know if he wants to be a man or a woman doesn't want, know if she wants to be a woman. That's the enemy's work. And let's not let that happen to us here in the body of Messiah. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. God, we honor your word. And the depth of it, we honor that you brought richness out tonight and through this whole series, God, as we get into what it means to be engrafted, what it means to have one shepherd and two sheep pens, what it means to be in the new covenant age with new tools. Let us learn from each one of these that we might love and honor each other, that those around the world can connect with us and learn from what's happening here in Jerusalem. Father, we pray for unity, not only in our own congregation, but in all the other congregations around us. We pray for unity from congregation to congregation here in Jerusalem as well. And as we honor you and we find our identity in you, may the world look at this and see the character of the Messiah. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 